Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. The fact that we, we can do this, that we have this opportunity together, that it doesn't, really doesn't exist in very many places in the world, I don't think, where gay men can sit together, practice together, appreciate each other's uh, experiences and lives, and support each other in this practice, or in whatever practice people are doing, but in this thing called Buddha Dharma. So it's really wonderful for me to be here with you this morning. Um, I'm going to be uh, speaking, in the newsletter it said, uh, Teachers as Spiritual Friends. Um, it's a very big topic. Um, but before I, I do that, I want to speak a little bit about GBF itself. Um, because I've been thinking a lot about the Gay Buddhist Fellowship lately um, and in, in what way that I can support this group in the last eight or nine months. My health hasn't been so good, so I haven't been as involved as I've been in the past. Um, but I appreciate and think it's extremely valuable that we're, that we're together and that we're practicing together, and, and I want to support GBF somehow. And recently, GBF has been gone, undergone some changes. Uh, the steering committee has changed. Many people have left. Some people have come, come back or come, come on again, new people. And um, I was reminded, I mean, some people were concerned about this a couple of, month, a couple of weeks ago, that things were going to fall apart, maybe. But actually, they don't. Um, they fall apart, but then they come together again. So I think um, this, this actual... The changes that are going on in GPF now um, are just the changes that go on, maybe in some ways are a metaphor for changes that go on in our own lives. It's no big surprise. <laughs> this is the situation we find ourselves in constantly, constant change. And the minute we want to try to hold on to some other way, like it's going to be this way, the steering committee is going to go on for five or ten years, it's not going to happen. <laughs> people are going to come, people are going to go. So now there's new energy. So once again, this is a great opportunity for this organization to, and the Sangha to, um, to be open to the changes that are going on and not to have a, a particular way that it has to be. So just doing the, to me, just doing the Sunday extra sitting is wonderful that we're doing that. So we, have to, we can see where that goes just in itself. That's a big step and a great commitment to... Uh, practice of the, of the whole Sangha. So I want to commend the steering committee for, for making that decision. Also, I'd like to thank people. I don't know how many people are here from the steering committee, but I'd like to thank the people on the steering committee. It's um, a lot of work supporting this group and leading this group. And um, I've been on the steering committee different, different times in my involvement in GPF and I know it's sometimes, quote-unquote, a thankless task, but it's also, to me, most importantly, it is a practice opportunity. So, once again, because when you're dealing with people, it's not going to be the way you want it to be, so it's, there's going to be some, some difficulty, you know, some conflict, some confusion, some pain. But it's a great opportunity to be able to work together, I think. So for people who are interested in either being on the steering committee or in helping in some way who want to make a... Who want to make a um, contribution to this group and to this sangha. Um, it's very possible, and now is a good time to do it. There, I think there's. It seems like it's another change, another shift, so it's, it's wonderful. So I wanted to thank the people that have been on the steering committee in the past for supporting my practice and for supporting all of our practices, and also for the people that are new who are coming on. So that's a wonderful thank you for, to all of those people. Without you, there... Well, without you, there'd be somebody else, maybe. That's what my, that's what my teacher used to say. <laughs> but that's okay.
So I, I find, just bef- a little bit more about GBF, I wanted to say that, that I consider GBF uh, and our work together, our practice together, to be a great treasure. And literally, it is one of the treasures, one of the three treasures, the Sangha. So, um, I think we sometimes forget that. We think, oh, we're just a bunch of gay guys and we're kind of hanging out and you know, sitting together. But when you sit together, when you practice together, when you do common practices, you don't know where it's going to go. You have no idea of the influence that, that this group has had, not only in San Francisco, but around the country, really, and supporting people actually in, around the world in certain places. And certainly prisoners. I write to prisoners, and they're very thankful that GPF exists, and they can feel the support for their practice. So your practice supports them. So I want to remind people of that. So um, we don't we don't just think we're, it's not as insular as we might think. So I get to the topic um, this morning. I was on I was on retreat about a week and a half ago at a place called Vajrapani, which is a Tibetan practice place in the Santa Cruz Mountains. It was a really it's a wonderful place, and I was in a little cabin alone for a week, and just sitting, and um, basically sitting, practice some some walking, some uh, reading, a little reading, writing, and uh, what kept on coming up the whole time I was there were my teachers, and. Um, and I realized, I knew I was going to be giving this talk, but I just said, oh, you know, I don't want to think about that so much. But what happened was, the reality was that it came to me. It was like, this has been on my mind a lot in my practice in the last year or so, how essential, for me anyway, how essential my teachers have been, how important they've been in my practice life. Um, my teachers were... I have many teachers, but two that were the most prominent were, of course, uh, uh, Shinryu Suzuki Roshi, who founded San Francisco Zen Center, and Isan Dorsey, uh, who was um, uh, a gay, very out <laughs> gay monk, a priest who was, and teacher who uh, was very involved at Hartford Street Zen Center and who I practiced with for about five years there. Um, By definition, in, at least in my tradition, um, teachers, the relationship between student and teachers is, there's one of the definitions is uh, you're in the bloodline, which I always thought was a, a wonderful, sort of like you're part of the family. You're, um, the connection with the teacher means that you have a, quite an intimate relationship with not only with that particular person, but with the lineage itself. Um, which I never really understood early on before I had teachers. I never, never really cut quite a sank in. Um, but actually having the relationship, I began to experience that more and more, that feeling of family. This is my family, and being a home leaver, you know, which obviously for gay people a lot of us are. Um, having uh, that family was very important to me. In, in a wider sense of family than, than, the we, than what we usually think. But still, uh, the pedigree, I like the language of the, pred- the pedigree of non-duality <laughs> or, the, or the pedigree of uh, impermanence or the pedigree of wisdom and compassion. So, and um, I feel there's a certain intimacy with not only my teachers but with their teachers and their teachers and their teachers, which goes back... Um, basically to the Buddha, um, a certain intimacy and a certain gratitude for their practice and for their commitment. Because without them, we wouldn't be here. I mean, for me, I wouldn't be here for sure, but many of us without teachers historically who have passed the teaching down, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have it. We wouldn't have this great gift. So um, This isn't done very often, but I, I wanted to do this. Um, there's... In our tradition, there's something called a Kechimiyaku, and people who are in the Zen tradition probably know what that is. It's a lineage chart, and um, I have a copy of one, though it's not an original one. I don't know if people get a chance to see this. I just kind of wanted to show you. 
um, what it looks like. I'm just going to hang. After, if you want to look at it, you can. Something tangible to me to get some sense of what the tradition is like in my tradition. Here's Shakyamuni. Um, those are the, that's the lineage to my last teacher, Isan Dorsey. Those are the 90 people back to him, back to the Buddha, from him to the Buddha. It's kind of cool. This is Shakyamuni. All these people here are the Indian teachers. These people on the side, if you watch it all fall, the people on the side are Chinese. Here is our teacher, uh, great teacher, uh, Eihei Dogen, who was the founder of our lineage. And then all the Japanese teachers. And then my last two teachers, uh, Suzuki Roshi and then Isan. Uh, Isan Daine, One Mountain, Great Peace. So if you want to look at this later, you might get it. Actually, the original, when you get these, when you, when you get these at Jukai, or, which is when you take the precepts, or if you get Tokudo, which is priest ordination, they have these big um, seals that go here, here, and then the teacher seal goes in the bottom with your name under it. Um, anyway, you get some sense of, of lineage when you are there in it, sort of, and, and stuck in it. You get some sense of this is, this is the family, the family tree. Um, so that's, uh, I think, an important sense of how, what the connection is with teachers, at least what they've been for me. There's also a certain, like, recognition, like, oh, I know you. You know, you're, when I met my teachers, it was like, it was a certain familiarity about, I felt I belonged with them, belonged in their lineage or in their, in their, um, in their style of teaching. Um, I want to say something about how teachers work with students. I think that's important, at least in my own experience. And that's all I can talk about, how my teachers work with me. Um, first of all, in, in a relationship with a teacher, the student many times creates the relationship. It's, it was up to me, if I felt something strong from these particular people, to ask them to be my teacher in a formal kind of way. That's the way I did it. Um, though in the, originally I didn't want a teacher, I wasn't interested in that. I just I was just going along practicing. But something about them pulled me in, and so I asked for in a more formal fashion. Um, so it's a two-way street, I think, with a teacher. So it's not just the teacher sort of setting his or herself up. It's more a much more intimate thing than that, because when you actually begin working with a teacher, the roles switch a lot. And you think it's one way, and it's not that at all. And the teacher's open enough, usually, to be able to play with that. Because they're just roles, after all. I think we need to be open, uh, if we're in a relationship with a teacher, we need to be open emotionally and physically to that person, which is different than just the Dharma, I think. Because many times, the Dharma is expressed or transmitted in ways that aren't necessarily intellectual. My teachers could touch me or a gesture or a look. And then sometimes it felt as if the whole teaching were passed on at that moment. Um, so it's, it, when you're working with a teacher, I think it's really important to be able to be as open as possible in every way possible. Um, that's my experience anyway. Um, certainly, Islan Dorsey was that way. Those of you who knew him, he's a very physical person and very connected and the first thing you want to do, uh, when I saw Arthur today, actually, it was really nice to see you because I thought of the sun when I saw you. And the first thing you wanted to do when you saw Islam was just sort of fall into his arms. <laughs> it was just something about him that was completely transparent and open and ready sort of to accept anything that was going to happen between you. And also, I think we need to let go of ideas about what the relationship's supposed to be, how the teacher's supposed to teach us. And we do. We have a lot of ideas. It's got to be this way or that way, or it has to be uh, something that I think is good for me. And what you find, actually, is just the opposite. <laughs> Usually with the teachers, they're going to do things that uh, are probably going to upset you and confuse you and um, pull the rug out from you constantly. And that's true of not just in my particular tradition, I think pretty much in every tradition. Teachers are guides in the sense of 
being able to, if you're on the path, they kind of help. So if you're going this way too much, they kind of say, well, why don't you try going doing this? And if you're calling, falling this way, they kind of push you this way. And so my relationship with them was more, um, also the ones that I had were more, more casual. Um, and they were, since they were truly themselves, uh, fully, they were, they allowed me to be myself. And so there was that freedom not to be, not to worry about uh, any particular kind of front to put on that I that I might have created that we all create the fronts that we have. It's quite liberating actually to work with a teacher because you don't have to do that. It's sort of like a lover in a way uh, that you, you don't have to be caught by that. It's one less thing you can one one thing you can let go. One more thing you can let go. For me, again, my teachers, um, Isan and also Suzuki Roshi, to me were really personifications of the teaching. And so they said a lot of things that were wonderful and, and spoke. And sometimes, you know, Suzuki Roshi, from his talks, ended up, there's a book written, a very famous book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. But actually, it wasn't so much, my experience with him wasn't so much about what he said. It was more how he lived his life, how he acted, how he acted toward me. And the same with Isan, how they, how they acted. Uh, if you want to know about impermanence, you just watch their behavior and hung around them. And, that, and they exemplified impermanence. They exemplified compassion. They exemplified wisdom. It wasn't ideas. It wasn't, oh, you know, listen to me, I'm wise. It was, it was watch me. This is wisdom in action. This is compassion in action rather than the th- some theory. And I think that's a good judge of a teacher. If, if you be, watch how they behave uh, carefully, too, please. Uh, so for me, my teachers were the teaching. That's how I d- would describe it. Um, and there, and there, in my tradition, too, there are many stories, as you probably know, about that's how one of the main ways the teaching gets expressed and gets transmitted is are through stories and through experiences that monks may have with teachers. It's a very common, you know. If you read the stories in Zen in China and Japan, and all other traditions too, they're always doing that. There's that, that that's a common teaching tool. And people study the, those, uh, those uh, stories. But I, what's wonderful to me is that the stories are still going on. And I, that's one of the things I want to do this morning is to share with you some stories about my teachers that I think then you get some sense of what I'm talking about, what, it, what, what they did, how they acted toward me, and how they acted in their lives. You can get some sense of that. Before, before I go into that, I wanted to say, too, that my, te- my teachers always sort of question my view of, of the world constantly. So if I would say something, they would always throw the Dharma back in my face in a sweet way, generally. Not always, but in a, in a way that I could hear it. But not, um, never letting it go, sort of like, you know, so I could never, like, get off the hook. I'd, I'd say, make some comment about something, and they'd be right there with, with the Dharma view, always, because they couldn't help it in a way. They... They live the Dharma, so if I was if I were flitting off in some direction um, um, and uh, confused, they would definitely question me and uh, work with me on it, and not not afraid to do that. The relationship opened me up and them up to that experience. So teachers help create the fertile ground for us to experience the truth of the Dharma of our own lives. When we're ready to hear the truth, it can permeate our whole being and transform our lives. So I think that's very true. That was what the experience was for me. I didn't feel like I ever really began to understand the Dharma, the little I do understand, until I really worked closely with teachers. That was for me. And I don't think that's true for everybody necessarily, but it was for me. I really didn't. I, had, I read a lot of books and nothing seemed to sink in. I never really, it never, I never felt it in my being until I had a teacher. So I want to talk a little, I'll tell a little few stories about uh, my teachers. Um, one I really like um, about Suzuki Roshi, a couple of them actually. Um, years ago, when I was a teenager, um, 
the Zen Center, San Francisco Zen Center, it was before San Francisco Zen Center, it was the old Sakoji Temple on Bush Street. Uh, the place is still there. It's the, it's the Go Club now. Anyway, um, Suzuki, that's where the Zen Center was. And there was every morning meditation, Zazen, every morning. And then there was also, a, I can't remember what, I think it was Thursday nights. Wednesday is the Thursdays, but I can't remember. Uh, Suzuki gave a talk. And... Uh, and we would go over, and I was a hippie, basically, you know, and I had hair out to here, you know, anyway. So I, I'd go over there um, because people said, this man, this Suzuki guy, is enlightened, you know. So you can go check out what enlightenment looks like. So I thought, well, this is cool, you know, I want to see what this is. So I remember us actually smoking a lot, my friends and I smoking a lot of dope, or maybe even dropping acid or something, and just to see what enlightenment looked like, you know. So what, what is this guy really like? So this, and so we'd go there, we'd go there, and... You know, walk in and he'd open the front door and he'd smile. And he was a small man. And he'd smile and bow to each one of us. And, and he knew we were just loaded out of our minds, you know. <laughs> but he was so, he was so wonderful. He said, oh, I'm so, so glad to see you. I'm so glad you're here. And come in, come in, come in. You know? And we'd all come in and everybody's, you know. And then we'd listen to his talk. And half the time, uh, quite honestly, I can't remember what he said. Because part of the time he didn't, I couldn't understand his English a lot of the time. So, but just being in his presence, something was going on. There was some, and, and the reason I know that is that I'm here with you now. <laughs> so there's, there's a transformation going on even when we don't know about it. My favorite story with Suzuki was when I um, was quite young again during that same period, I guess, and, and I had a very hard time sitting. I mean, just a horrible time. The first time I sat, I thought I was going to die. For five minutes, I couldn't sit for five minutes. It was just so painful, and my mind was so scattered. But um, I wanted to do Dokusan with him. And Dokusan is a formal practice interview where you go in and you, it's a very formal thing where you talk with the teacher about your practice or talk about your own understanding. And, and it's very formal in that you go in, you bow to the Buddha statue, and you bow to three Buddha, and you bow to the teacher. And it's a very formal thing. Well, they taught me how to do all this outside the room, the Dokusan room. And Suzuki Roshi was inside. So I went over the whole thing with me and I. You know, I was trying to remember everything, you know. And I walked into the room, and he was sitting there. There's a low light, candles going, and I completely blanked, you know. I couldn't remember anything I was supposed to do. And so I just stood there, and he said, hello. And I went, hello. Because normally you don't do the greeting. You do all the things, and you sit down, and you right in front of the teacher, and you talk, you know. Well, I, I said, oh, Roshi, I forgot, I forgot what to do. I can't remember I can't remember what I'm supposed to do. And he said, oh, 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 come here. And so he said, sit here in my place. So I sat down in his place, and he went through the whole ritual, like it was me, showing me the vows and everything. And then I bowed him, the whole thing, you know. So he switched roles, you know, really quickly. And he said, do you see? And I said, oh, yeah, that's And I was just shocked that he was doing all this stuff. There's this guy, you know, with his robes on, doing all this whole little number, you know. And so I was very touched by that and very, I mean, and even now I'm more touched by it now. I can't believe he actually did that. I mean, it's quite amazing to me that he went, went, did all that. He also, um, at that same meeting, I was a very uh, idealistic, I think, and, and I really wanted to practice. I had a great desire to practice, but, but <laughs> not, I don't think I had. I had a great desire, but it didn't seem to transform into reality. I couldn't get my ass over to the Zen Center very often. So, what I mean, I was too busy, you know, having a good time, being, you know, young and having a, and doing drugs and sex, drugs and rock and roll. You know. So, um, but anyway, when I when I so I'm sitting there with him, and I'm and I'm very idealistic, and I'm saying to him, and I remember saying real clearly, "Oh, Roshi, I want to be your student." Like. You know, <laughs> pleading, you know. And he said, okay. You know, and I just, and that's all he said. Okay, that's that's fine. You can be my student. I went, is that it? I mean, is that all there is to this? I mean, is that, I was surprised at that too, how, how immediate he was with it. He just, he just accepted me. He didn't care, you know, how crazy I was, how often I showed up, or any of that, you know. Complete acceptance of me the way I was at that time in my life, uh, which is amazing. It was amazing to me. And now that I think back on it, quite amazing that he that he did that. I did want to read just a few things um, from Suzuki that I think are a few things that other people have experienced about him that I think are really wonderful. Um, 
This is from Ed Brown, who uh, is a priest and who wrote uh, the Tassajara cookbooks you might be familiar with. One day, this is, he talks about working at Tassajara, being the, the tenzo, doing the tenzo there, being the head cook there. One day I was working in the kitchen at Tassajara, the old tiny kitchen we may do for several years before the new one was completed. It was late morning, nearing lunchtime, and I had begun to feel the stress of getting the meal ready on time. Plus, my mind was raging about one thing or another, probably four or five things. I was quite absorbed, so to speak, in the storm of activity, both inside and out, and I slowly became aware that a voice was calling my name. Awareness came slowly because first I had to comprehend that the sound was indeed the sound of my name, but secondly because the name seemed to refer to an awfully nice, wonderful person, happy and radiant, that was not me. Only it was me. Because there was Suzuki Roshi standing in the doorway calling my name. I was quite, st quite startled to realize that I was that person also. It was as though the clouds had parted to reveal blue sky, not dazzling, but clear, calm, and spacious. What he said after that was pretty ordinary. This is from Frank Anderson. The last time I saw Suzuki Roshi was in February 1971. I drove out from Oklahoma for Sashin, which is a practice period for a week to two weeks, and had a long, lonely ride, part of the way through a snowstorm which delayed me for a day. I experienced a lot of fear and loneliness during the trip out and was feeling very uncertain about myself and my practice. I had Dokasan interview with the Roshi during Sashin, and at one point, prompted by something he had said, I asked him if Big Mind was lost in the dark too, as I felt I was, or Buddha Mind. He said, no, not lost in the dark, working in the dark. And he moved his arms about demonstrating. He said it was like the many-armed statue of Avalokiteshvara, Bodhisattva, and he made the statue come alive for a moment. I had seen, I had the sense of a thousand arms moving gracefully, harmoniously, not needing to see. Before the interview ended, Roshi said to me, you are very sincere, which I felt was quite true, and I immediately broke into the most insincere, foolish smile imaginable. <laughs> I felt it burning on my face. I felt ashamed and looked at Roshi, knowing he had seen me, and he sat calmly staring back at me and said nothing accepting me completely as I was. And the last one is very short and it is quite wonderful to me. Uh, this is um, Lou Richmond, who was a senior priest at Zen Center for many years. Very short. One time I asked Roshi if he did not feel any pressure and difficulty with all the various ragged students who came off the street seeking enlightenment. He said, I am very grateful for them. I will do all I can for them. He was so light and happy when he said it. Um, I want to just tell a quick story about Isan Dorsey because um, he, he meant so much to me and was so important in my practice life. Um, it's about, well, what was going on was that we were visiting, we were working with people, this is in the late 80s, we were working with people who had HIV disease, obviously, and um, we were thinking about doing a hospice at the time because several of our members were sick and were dying and didn't have a place to go. But anyway, this particular time, we went to see a fellow who was, at the, was in a Tenderloin hotel. I, I, I think it was the ambassador, but I don't, I don't, I, I don't think so because the ambassador was trying to think that, but I can't remember. It was a smaller hotel than that, actually, but... That comes to my mind. And uh, we went to visit this fella, and I went with this son. And uh, we walked into the hotel. It's a pretty seedy place. And uh, we went to the elevator, and the elevator was very small. It was a really small little thing, and you, you, could, you could barely fit two people, really. And it was an old-time one that has the things that you pull across, you know, with a metal grate. And so... We step into the elevator, and just as we step into the elevator, Isan sees two guys come into the hotel, and they're heading toward the elevator. And, 
and I look at them, and they're very large guys. I mean, like really big guys, like six three, you know, two fifty or bigger. And they're bikers, basically, you know, with all these tattoos up and on their arms. And one had a knife in his belt, and they just didn't look like guys that I kind of wanted to be in a really close elevator with. You know? I mean, I just wanted to go upstairs, see the guy who was sick, and you know, do the, you know, do do that thing. And so Isan says, "Come on, there's plenty of room." And I'm going, "This guy's out of his mind." So we're, we, the four of us, are. St- squished in this elevator. I mean, really, like, like this. Just, you know. And I say, what is he doing? Why? You know, so the door closes and the elevator it hits the button and it goes, you know, those other go, chonk, you know. And nothing happens. And then he goes again, chonk, you know. And so slowly it's starting to go up. And I'm starting to feel real uncomfortable, you know, kind of like panicky and sweating. And he, and he goes, he chimes, those of you who remember him, he chimes and goes, Hi, he says to them, my name is Isan. And, and I went, oh, shut up. <laughs> You're going to talk to these guys, you know? And from, I didn't hear a thing from then on. I didn't hear anything. I was so freaked out. I said, what are you doing? In my head, I was thinking to myself, you're crazy. You're talking to these guys. We're going to get, you know, this is a dangerous situation. What? So I'm lost in my head the whole time. I don't hear anything that anyone's saying. And then the elevator stops. Next thing I know, and these guys get out. And he hugs both of them. And they say, oh, it's not. It was really great talking with you. <laughs> and I missed the whole thing. You know, I mean, he, and, he said, and so then we, the door closed, and we went up to see the guy. And I said, and I told him what my take was on it. And he said, oh, he said, oh no, those were nice boys. They wouldn't hurt anybody. <laughs> So, I mean, that's a very good indication of not only his compassion, but how he would read situations and how I, being as ignorant as I was, didn't read them very well. So that, that was an example. There were a lot of, I mean, being with his son was quite amazing, too. I wanted to talk more about him, but we're a little short on time today. But um, he was uh, incredibly present um, completely dedicated to practice 20-some-odd years, um, was a great example, once again, once again, the personification of, of the teaching. Um, and I owe so much to him, and our practice together was very val- valuable to me. And um, I miss him a great deal. But in some ways, he's still here. And in some ways, GBF... Ha- I mean, to me, if he were here, he'd be at all the meetings, all these meetings, because he would really appreciate GBF a whole lot and uh, um, would be supporting us as much as he could. There's another little thing I want to say about his son. When he was dying, <laughs> this is really kind of funny. When he was dying, one of the one of the monks was hanging out with him. We all spent time with him, and he died of HIV disease in 1990, September of 1990. And one of the monks uh, told him, "Esan, I'm really going to miss you." And he said, "Why? Where are you going?" I was, that was really wonderful. <laughs> that was a very Esan kind of comment, and the guy went, "Huh." <laughs> So he would transmit the teaching in a lot of ways, even when you when you didn't stand. It. I just want to read two more things, and then we can stop because it's uh, after twelve. This is a just a little bit of a quote from uh, Zen, my beginner's mind, which I'm sure. Maybe I'm not sure, but people might be aware of it. It's kind of a classic Zen book from the talks by Suzuki Roshi. And it's a description of really what a teacher is. It's quite wonderful, I think. And it was a description um, that I think just speaks very well and is very clear. A teacher is a person who has actualized that perfect freedom, which is the potentiality for all human beings. He or she exists freely in the fullness of his own being. The flow of his consciousness is not the fixed, repetitive patterns of our usual self-centered consciousness, but rather arises spontaneously and naturally from the actual circumstances of the present. The results of this in terms of the quality of his life are extraordinary. Buoyancy, vigor, straightforwardness, simplicity, humility, 
serenity, joyousness, and unfathomable compassion. His whole being testifies to what it means to live in the reality of the present. Without anything said or done, just the impact of meeting a personality so developed can be enough to change another's whole way of life. But in the end, it is not the extraordinariness of the teacher which perplexes, intrigues, and deepens the student. It is the teacher's utter ordinariness. Because he is just himself, he is a mirror for his students. When we are with him, we feel our own strengths and shortcomings without any sense of praise or criticism from him. In his presence, we see our original face, and the extraordinariness we see is only our own true nature. When we learn to let our own nature free, the boundaries between master and student disappear in a deep flow of being and joy in the unfolding of Buddha mind. And the last thing I want to read is um, uh, from uh, a book called Queer Dharma, which is just out. So I'll show you that. Um, and um, it's something I wrote, actually, and <laughs> that's why I'm going to read it. <laughs> it's kind of a, it, it's the, it's, it's, it was a very important time in my life and a very important experience with Hassan Dorsey, so I just want to read it. It's called, it's called Home, and this is the last thing I'll read. Downstairs, the meditation hall was cold at 5 a.m. in the morning, icy floor on my bare feet, cold air coming from the wall and window cracks, cold fog trying to seep into the place. Isan was warm upstairs. He just drank hot green tea from his summer tea bowl. He was on the floor doing his morning exercises, his legs stretching this way and that. He looked like a baby playing, his shaved head shining. He was warming up for meditation, getting his legs and back ready for two hours of sitting still. He moved with a smooth swimming motion, familiar positions he'd taken thousands of times before. Then he stood up and began putting on his robes, finally his kesa, his monk's robe. I helped him adjust the folds of it behind where he couldn't reach. The back of his neck and head were precious to me. I lit two sticks of incense and stood behind him. I could feel his warmth as we walked downstairs into the cold meditation hall. We stopped at Suzuki Roshi's altar. He offered incense, did prostrations, bowed, and then moved to the main altar. I walked behind him in the sweep of his robes. We were together alone in this basement zendo, acting out the morning rituals of an ancient tradition. He approached the altar, held his hands together, signaling me to give him the stick of incense so he could offer it. He carefully took it from my hands and put it to his head. As he placed it in the incense bowl, he looked at me with a slight, small smile and said very softly, This is your home. I could feel chills rise on my body. The hair at the back of my neck stood up, and I shuddered all over. I was so shocked and touched by his words, tears filled my eyes. Then we sat down on our cushions to meditate. Through most of the next two hours of meditation, I heard those words resonating deep in me, filling every part of me. I realized then they would be with me for the rest of my life that this Zen monk so reached into me that I would understand the teaching more fully than ever before. In a cold Zendo in early morning, I was finally and completely home. Thank you very much. It's a... after 12, so I don't know. People want to. Good question. How do people feel about that? Do people want to leave? Or? Okay, Richard. Um, I was wondering if you look at the teachers, the, the um, teachings come from the, the different lives. Um, 
see, I mean, have you experienced a teacher, any of your teachers, do something or act in a way that you didn't feel was Oh yeah. How do you how do you My Isan used to drink. He's an alcoholic. Yeah, that was a real hard one for me. I mean, he wasn't alcoholic like. I mean, I don't understand. I mean, I've looked into alcoholism and all stuff, but I I don't know really what an alcoholic is really. But he would drink to excess at times. That was very difficult for me. I told him we had like discussions about it. A couple of times we twice we drank together. And got lo- you know got loaded together. So I mean I don't drink. <laughs> we should talk about that. I don't do very well. I had a hard time with that. Uh, I had a very difficult time with that. Um, but as time went on, um, we would wor- we worked on it together. And I, I think he changed actually. I think I wasn't the only one who who was concerned about his drinking. Um, so is that what you mean? Well, I guess yeah. I mean so. Perhaps maybe my tendency is to think that a teacher is somewhere up here. No. Did you ever have that illusion? Or? Yeah, early on I did. When I was young, I did, yeah. I did with Suzuki. I thought Suzuki was like... But I had a lot of people... I, I never had any negative experiences with Suzuki, actually. He was very supportive of me. I think because I was young and stupid, you know, quite honestly. <laughs> he felt sorry for me. <laughs> you know... <laughs> But I mean, I heard, you know, like Reb Anderson has stories about Suzuki. Reb Anderson's the senior priest or whatever they're calling him these days, Dharma or whatever. <laughs> he used to be the abbot, but now he's not the abbot, so he's got some muckety-muck position. Anyway, so he, he said that Suzuki was a pain in the ass sometimes, you know. He could be very, very stubborn and very difficult and, you know, like, like all of us can, you know. So I think, that, I think to think that teachers are perfect in some way or that they're morally superior, it's, it's not, that's not what it's about, really. It's, a, it's some, about something else. It's about what the teaching is. What's the teaching? You know, does that make sense? Or, it doesn't never bothered me, quite honestly. Maybe because I was so such a fuck up. <laughs> quite honestly, I mean, but, excuse me. Yeah. But in the you know, for some of us who have had experiences in some groups in Hindu tradition where the guru is there is the idea of a guru. And I was in an ashram once where the guru was said to be God. He was God. So you did not question anything you did. And um, that's, it seems to me what you're saying is this is a different, that's not. Well, I think it's different in each tradition. I know in the Tibetan tradition, there are many Tibetan practitioners here, I don't know if there are not. Uh, the guru tradition is is continuing in that tradition, though it's not, I don't think, as strict as that, but you're taught to visualize your guru and to hold that vision in your consciousness. And that's a way of... of um, that's a you know, serious, profound practice. So um, I don't know what that means. I think what, one of the things that happens, if you have wonderful experience with your teachers, you don't have to put them on a pedestal, in a sense. They've just become incredibly precious to you. you know? I mean, I don't know how to describe them any, any better than that. I, I never really... I, sometimes I found myself putting them on a pedestal, but most of the time I'm just incredibly grateful that they were able to help me. They helped me understand the teaching. I didn't. It took me a really long time to kind of get the, not that I've got that much, but just some a taste of the teaching is one of the ways we describe it in our tradition. What's the taste of Buddhist of Buddhism? And, and that's what they did for me. They really, and I never had that before. I'm reading on my own or doing my own in my own practice even. And it wasn't until I worked with them that I could kind of get through get through to that point where. I, it all sort of started making sense. It all sort of fit together. And before that, I was just, I didn't know what the hell, what, what, what all this, how these, inter- they seem very interrelated to me. Impermanence and interconnectedness and compassion. It's a bunch of words, you know. They didn't mean anything until I actually experienced it with them. They were, they showed me what that, what, what those things meant. That's, that was very valuable to me. So I have, I have them deep in my, they're in my heart and, they're still here in a way. They're both dead, but they're still quite quite close. So I don't know if that. I just want to follow up because the, the reason I, I, I just occurred to me is occurred to me while you've been talking and just responding to what just asked that that um, there have been a lot of abuses by teachers and in teacher situations and by people who are not who don't relate to them the way that you related to your teachers. But who who really give themselves over to somebody who may abuse them? I think people should be really, really, really careful 
I don't think you should just walk into these guys and women too. I don't care women or men teachers. If you really want a teacher, I mean, if you really want a teacher desperately, I think that's a problem right off the bat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's just another attachment. So. Uh, but I think that if, if you have teachers in your lives, utilize them. I think they should be used. I think you should use them as much as possible. Get as much out of them as you can. That's their job, especially in my tradition. They're monks. Their job, the priests and monks. Their job is to um, is to be of service. That's the <coughs> vow they take. We, we take a vow, the bodhisattva vows. That's what they're for. And in other traditions, I don't know. I, I don't want to say about that. Yeah, Peter. I was going to say that in the um, in my, well, I understand if, if you take like uh, you know, the words of my perfect teacher, which is a sort of a major Tibetan text. There's a lot of talk about um, you know you have to really look at somebody, you know, see are they actually embody compassion. You know, you should be very skeptical. It sounds very much like what you're saying, actually, in what Suzuki Roshi says. And, I mean, it's a very it, it's it's not it's not well. I, I've heard that um, some of the they, these are avatars, aren't they, I mean, or something like that. that that's that's not what the Tibetan view would be. I don't think it's what the Tibet. I don't think it's what any any of the major Buddhist traditions are that I'm aware of, anyway. Yeah. And I think, but I still think people should be really careful. Uh, And I think also, not only with teachers, but also also with centers, they should be really questioning and and not just jump in. Because if you're too attached to it, you know you're going to be disappointed. You know it because it's not going to be what you think it is. These these teachers are not going to fulfill some deep emotional longing in you. Forget it. You know, in fact, just the opposite. They're going to point it up and say. You know, you got a lot of deep emotional longing. Get rid of that shit. You know, <laughs> that's exactly what's going to happen. You go, oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, how are we doing? Yes. What's your name? Mark. Hi, Mark. Um, just from my short experience with Zen, uh, and I've had a couple of interviews. What I've noticed is that initially, I guess I looked to my individual teacher as you know, the source of, of discipline or the source of teaching me about the discipline of Zen. And what I'm finding is that my definition of teacher is expanding well beyond the individual. That I guess what he, in a sense, what I'm experiencing with him is that he's, in a sense, teaching me how to learn from, from each person in my life. So I guess for me that is what I'm reaching for so that in a sense it seems to me a check on this this tendency or this the risk of in a sense handing myself over to one one person so uh, what I'm curious is is do, have you had a similar experience in your own work with, or in the own time with your teachers did you find that over time um, it wasn't so that one person wasn't Necessarily, as key to your learning as as time progressed, that 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 the circle of people that you learn from expanded. Yes. Yes, that's a wonderful question, and also just a wonderful observation on your part. Yeah, I think we we've talked about that a lot in GBF. That there, everyone we work with is is a te- everyone is a teacher in that sense of of having the opportunity to see through our self-deluded. View, I mean, constant, that's constant. I think so. Um, yes, I. That's true. But I still find, for me anyway, my teachers hold a, a special place in the same way that maybe lovers would, or I don't know. It's hard to put it in the same. Use this, you know, compare it to other people, other kinds of relationships, because I. Um, I think it's special in a, in a way, and I don't. I don't know what kind of relationships you have with the people you're working with, teachers you're working with, or. What it, what that's like, but um, that's my experience. Is that helpful? Yeah, I, I, it is. I think it is mine as well. He's, it's kind of I, I see him as kind of just opening the door. So he, there, he's still very important and, and is, is unique in that respect. Mm-hmm. Okay, Peter. <coughs> uh, well, thank you very much for your talk. <laughs> I think the thing, I, I can't remember where I read it. It was in some spiritual book, but I don't know if it was Zen or Tibetan or Rajneesh. Um, 
But somebody said, if you follow the spiritual path and it's the right path for you, then life itself becomes your teacher. You know? And it's not about any... The lo, there is no locus of teaching anymore. Life itself becomes your teacher because you're on the path. And so you're being, you are being taught and, and being you know, uh, in your life at the same time. I, I was wondering, <clears throat> you talked a little bit about the beginnings of the Zen Center, but... Um, it was kind of just kind of fascinating to me. When you quote Suzuki Roshi's book, and when I read it, it's so beautifully written, it's so formal and so precise, and you can imagine the people at AHG, you know, reading a translation and saying, yes, 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 you know, that's the Dharma, that's true. But the crowd that he was dealing with was so offbeat and so, you know, wacky. <laughs> wacky. And he, and he, Suzuki. Yes, yeah, Suzuki. And he yeah. kind of got pushed away from the Japanese congregation that he came out to serve and sort right. of embraced, you know, people... Um, <clears throat> And I just wonder if you could comment a little bit more about that. What you think was going on? You know, what that has to do with his personality, with the teaching, with hmm. the, what was going on at, at the moment. I mean, people always talk about Jesus too and say, well, you know, if Jesus came back now, he'd be, you know, associating with unmarried mothers and and drug addicts and blah 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 blah. blah. You know, you always finding the the spiritual life amongst people who are outside the mainstream and. Um, and I, I, what fascinates me as you describe Suzuki Roshi is his ability to be in both camps at once, you know, to write that beautiful, lucid form of prose, formal prose, and to be giving Zen lessons to all these drug addicts <laughs> knocking on the door. Well, you have to remember, too, Peter, that this was written, this, he didn't write this. People should realize that. Trudy Dixon and who's the other, the other woman? I um, can't remember her name now. Um, they took, these were from talks that he gave. He did not write the book, actually. He gave the Dharma talks, and they polished it. And also, um, Zentatsu Richard Baker had a lot to do with it, too. And he was a very um, bright um, uh, fella who was the abbot of Zen Center for many years. And he and a couple of other people, like Yvonne Rand and, and um, even Reb Anderson, they kind of directed things, I think, in many ways. And Suzuki was kind of like the figurehead. This is my sense of it, from what I remember and from what people have told me, too. Because I wasn't that involved in it. You know, I was more peripheral. Very peripheral, actually, because I've always thought they were kind of weird myself. I mean, the real Zen people, I thought, were so rigid and strange. I mean, quite honestly, I didn't, you know, I was going, hey, you know, I want to get cool. And, you know, so I wanted to be comfortable and I want to get blissed out and all that. So I was coming from it from that point of view, so... So I think that actually he, he was kind of the focal point, and they and people at that time needed that. You know, I don't think that would happen the same way. Yeah, I don't. I think we're too. Um, I think we're too not critical necessarily, but too, yeah, critical. I think we'd be careful, and and so he did deal with a lot of people, you know, like the hippies and people that weren't that like focused. But he had behind that there were probably. There's also Silas, he's one of the main people, and Ananda Dahlenberg, Claude Dahlenberg, a lot of really bright people he, that, that Richard Baker pulled in, actually. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.